For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We return to this famous text of Scripture that is well known by the world and yet mostly rejected by the world. Nicodemus came to Jesus as a troubled soul. He believed that Jesus was from God. He told him that. But he didn't believe in him with a salvific or a saving faith. He had the knowledge of the reality that Jesus came from God, but this ultimately did nothing to produce in him trust in Jesus for eternal life. Jesus points out that Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, a ruler of the Jews, does not understand something as simple as two earthly illustrations, the first of which was the matter that being born again eliminates the remotest possibility that one could produce what is required for eternal life, eliminates any stitch of reasonable consideration that man contributes to his salvation. The second earthly illustration was that the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus being unredeemed, unregenerate, the natural man who does not accept the things of the Spirit of God did not understand these illustrations, and he made it clear by pointing back to the illustration rather than making any effort to grapple with the theology illustrated in the illustration. So he basically rejects the illustration by saying, well, what do I do, go back into my mother's womb? So Jesus' question is, Nicodemus, how is this possible? You, the teacher, don't get this. This really is the attitude you and I ought to have when we think of those who have some sense of religiosity but are clearly unregenerate with the grace that Jesus showed Nicodemus by continuing in this conversation with him. Now then in verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? So having pointed out that he does not understand, he then points out his hard-hearted unwillingness to receive truth in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you... Do not receive our testimony. So there was a willful intent in Nicodemus' heart to reject truth. So we've talked about the fact that there is belief and then there is saving belief. We can talk about what saving belief looks like, but Jesus has been pretty clear. that You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God but that believing that, then 
you might have eternal life. It's not enough just to believe that he's from God. Your trust must be exclusively in him. You recall Jesus said to the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Too many people come to the scriptures for the purpose of using the scriptures to assess other people's lives. You know, fully and completely resting in some fleshly move in their own life in the past, but unwilling to obey Scripture, to examine self in light of Scripture, to see whether or not they're even in the faith. But, oh, they've got enough knowledge. This was the Pharisees. They had plenty of knowledge, and they studied the Scriptures. Why? They believed that in the Scriptures you could have eternal life. But they missed the point that the Scriptures spoke of the person of Jesus. Now, this is pretty black and white, but today you have a couple more categories of how this fleshes out. You have the obvious cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, or many, many others. I would include Seventh-day Adventism, although certainly there are folks within the Seventh-day Adventist movement who are Christians. At some point, you know, they see the light and they abandon the Ellen G. White cult that it is. But that's kind of tricky, but it's not nearly as tricky as those who reject Roman Catholicism. They reject all the cults. They reject pseudo-Judaism, but they entangle themselves with the true church. And they're called tares among the wheat. And yet there's no hope of salvation evidenced in their lives. Many of you would attest to the fact that this was you at one time. This was me. I was a seminary student, a whitewashed tomb, unregenerate, but pretty clear on most of the basic doctrines of the Bible. Pretty clear that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. I believed that. But I did not rest in him for forgiveness of sins. I didn't rest in him for victory over sin and death in my life. There's evidence of that. This morning, again, we'll examine God's eternal gift of love to an exhaustively hateful world so that you will believe in his gift for eternal life. Now, I referenced last week's message. If you weren't here, you weren't able to be here, you really need to listen to that message. So much of what we're looking at here, I'm going to do some review, but so much of what we're looking at here is critically dependent upon the love of God. That's how he starts, for God so loved. So it's important to have a rich saturation in the truth of that doctrine, understanding what we would call theology proper, specifically the theology that God not only is love, but that he does love. Point number one last week was the eternal source of God's gift to a hateful world. As we said, the passage says, for God so loved the world. And the point here is that he loved the world. That's the issue. The operative term here is loved. This is love from eternity past. This isn't love that man earned. It's not love that God initiated inside time, space, and history. It was determined in eternity past. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. 
So this is love predestined, predestined, predestination could not be something that's done in light of what man is going to do into the future. That's not predestination. It's dependent upon something that happens in the future. That's man-centered approach to this reality of what predestination is. It's always extremely troubling to me and should be to you as well when someone says, I just don't believe in election. Election is all over the Bible. Someone says, I don't understand election. I would say, join the club. None of us have a fully comprehensive understanding of election. We just understand that it is the result of the kind intention of God's will. It's the kind intention of his heart that he would elect some. So it truly being everywhere in the Scripture, you know, you can't say, I don't believe in election and actually be a Bible student of any sort, maybe not even an actual Bible reader. Many times it's the person who kind of picks and chooses passages from all over the place and sort of presents himself as a student of the Bible. And some folks are pretty good at playing themselves off at, at that. Hear someone say, I just totally reject the doctrine of election, then that's not an honest, even Bible reader. Again, you see it all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament. Election is love from eternity past. It's God's determination to set special love on some. The world here is the stench filled humanity who has rejected God's truth. The term itself means. Humanity, cosmos, it's used elsewhere to speak of the system that the world is, but here it refers to people, and clearly not all people, but those who would what? Believe. Yeah, it's pretty important. Those who would believe, that's what he's talking about here. Those who would believe would have eternal life, and that love that God is speaking of, the love for the world, is for those who would Believe. So what is the world here? It's really important, lest you destroy all credibility for yourself in your efforts to persuade others to think rightly about this. The word world does not mean elect. There's no dictionary or lexicon on the planet that would lead you to think that cosmos means chosen. It doesn't mean that. The question, though, is how does he use that term here? Clearly, as we've pointed out, if you were to read through verse 17, you would know that he's not referring to every single person in the world. If he truly came to save every single person in the world, then he failed, right? If he came to save every single person in the world, then he failed miserably. Revelation 5 verse 9 shows to us how this works out. When he refers to the world... He's talking about people, and in talking about people, he's talking about those who will believe. Those are the ones he's talking about at this point that he loves. And who are they? Revelation 5, verse 9 gives us insight into the fact that there will be those from all over the world, those from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the world. Now listen. If you're one of those people that's had the privilege to travel a lot, you might even say, I traveled the world. Do you mean that you've been to literally every square inch of the world? No, you don't mean that. You might mean you've been to every continent. Maybe you've been to every country. That would be amazing. But you haven't been to every ounce of earth. Of course not. 
In the same way, you don't mean every single person in the world when you say, even when you say the whole world, which is not even what Jesus says here, the whole world. He just says the world. God so loved the world. But listen, as I said last week, and I think it's very important that you know this, this is not, this passage is not intended by God to be a tool by which you beat Arminians or by which Arminians beat you. That's not the idea. The operative term is love. God so loved. As I said, you lose credibility if you say cosmos means elect. That's crazy. That's hermeneutical insanity. Don't dive into something and embrace something unless it's truly been proven exegetically. So the word world does not mean elect, but Jesus is using it here to speak of only those within the world for whom the gift of Christ would result in saving belief. Point number two, the eternal splendor of God's gift to a hateful world, that he gave his only son. The word so speaks of the extent of that love or the way in which or the degree to which that love was expressed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Because of his love, he gave his son. He gave his son in an efficacious way. He granted propitiation. Propitiation is not the option, not the opportunity for atonement. It is atonement. Satisfaction. God's wrath is satisfied. Sins are propitiated on the cross. And it was glorious. It was glorious because he is glorious. He's splendorous. He is glory worthy. Revelation 5 again, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne. Now get the connection between Revelation 5 9 and Revelation 5 11. You see this? Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was what? Slain. You get this? In his being slain, he saved the world. Every single person in the world? No. Those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He's just said this two verses prior. That's who he was slain for. And he receives glory. It's a splendorous death. It's a splendorous gift. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. A Savior whose death is ineffective, he's not worthy of glory. And that is not the Savior who is the Lamb who was slain, resulting in the salvation of some from the whole world. He accomplished what he came to accomplish. This is a splendorous love. 
It's a glorious love. It's an efficacious love that results in God's specific intended glory. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, Jesus says in John 17, 22, in his high priestly prayer to the Father. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, this case is a different use of the term cosmos. Here... He speaks of the unsaved world who looks on. As they look on, they see that splendorous love. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, the Father's love for his children is well depicted and really rooted in the father's love for his son in the same way the son's love for the father. And with that, you have the call for those who are in Christ to love one another. Why? Because of the father's love for the son, the son's love for the father, and their love for God's children. This is not new on earth or in heaven that Jesus has glory. This is the glory that he had with the Father in eternity past. In the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father, their perfect love is revealed in the Father's gift of the Son to those whom he would save. You see the point? You see the reality that God's love is so great that he actually saves some pours his special love out upon them. And this is a gift. It's not an achievement. It's not compensation for a job well done. It's not heavenly applause of any man's accomplishment. Man does not receive applause for what God has done. You may have observed people coming down an aisle in a church sometime and the rest of the people giving wild praise and applause and cheers as if that person has achieved something great by making some sort of choice. Romans 9.16 says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. But this gift is not just any gift. It's a splendorous gift because Christ is splendorous. God gave his best gift, his most glorious gift, his only glorious son, the most splendorous, glorious gift, his only and unique son. Father's love for the world is rooted in his love for his only son. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. You see the connection? The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Hand, that's an expression of God's sovereign grace. What God the Father has given to God the Son is an expression of his love to him. It's his love gift to the Son, but he also is his love gift to those for whom he died. In John 17, 23, Jesus says that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. 
John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Whom did he love? Those who were his own. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is a splendorous gift of love. The glory of the Father is known in the Son. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Point number three. Point number three, I want you to see the eternal satisfaction of believing in God's gift. Believing in this gift, salvific belief, results in eternal satisfaction. These truths are impossible to believe. I think you know that. So the person who comes to these truths, like Nicodemus did, with some sort of supposed religious acumen, he's extremely frustrated when he hears these truths. He's very frustrated. Nicodemus was frustrated, but Nicodemus was on the precipice of honesty as he wrestled with the reality that he did not have any form of eternal security. And in particular, when he heard the truth of Scripture, it pricked his heart in such a way that it was an exhibition of a lack of peace. The text of Scripture here tells us that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There is eternal satisfaction in believing in this gift, believing salvifically. Plenty of people can explain to you a lot of the doctrine of the Bible, specifically the theology of the character of God in some sense. But there's no satisfaction for them. Whoever. The term whoever is at the top of the most abused words ever list in Scripture. There has unfortunately been a great deal of overemphasis on the word whoever here, or whosoever, as if the rest of the verse is not even there. Plenty of those who believe in the sovereignty of man and reject the sovereignty of God will highlight this term with literally no exegetical understanding and literally no hermeneutic understanding, just the basic willingness to read the text, to read the verse, to read the word in its context. Now, it's true that whoever believes in him will not perish and will have eternal life, but that does not negate Jesus' words in John 10 where he says to the Jews in verse 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. You see that? There are those who are God's sheep in eternity past. And at some point in time, he gives his sheep eternal life. They will never perish, Jesus says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You know that the fifth point of Arminianism is the firm belief that you can lose your salvation? 
Now, most Arminians today, I shouldn't say most, but many uh, reject that concept, but Arminius didn't reject it. And listen, if you believe the first four points of Arminianism, you have to believe the fifth because they all lead to man's pseudo-sovereignty. If man is in control of his destiny, then he can certainly do that which would eliminate his eternity. He can reject the faith. I remember a young man years ago saying to me, Todd, you know, I know you can't lose your salvation, but you can give it away. <laughs> Spoken very much like the heretic Jacobius Arminius. Now, why does Jesus speak of this reality? What is he addressing? Go back to verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John 1, 12 to 13, I think really one of the most powerful and concise expressions of the matter of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You say, how, do, how does that work? You've got to stick to the grammar. We love the grammar of the Bible. If you deal with the grammar, then any man-made proposition is going to disintegrate. It just doesn't take long if you'll stick with the truth of Scripture as it is given to us in detail. To all who did receive him. Now, you tell me, where is the command to receive him in Scripture? The command to receive Christ does not exist doesn't exist. Some erroneously allude to Revelation 3, where Jesus speaks of those who knock on the door of his heart. And as you know, he's speaking to the church. He's calling the church to return to its first love. He's calling the church to acknowledge the reality of who Jesus is. And in doing so, will invite Jesus to spiritually dine with them, but it's not unusual for those who are passionately devoted to a man-made theology to misuse Scripture, and they typically assume that you have no idea what you're talking about, because candidly, a lot of people don't, and it's easy to manipulate people with a misuse of Scripture, and that's what they do. Now, why does this matter? Every now and then, I look at a page where pastors are kind of working through some theological issues, and I noticed some men that I know recently really dismissing the significance of definite atonement. But you have to ask the question, why does it matter? Here's why it matters. Because of man's culpability for his false conversion. That's why it matters. Man is culpable for his false conversion. If he rests in a belief that he conjured up, if his hope is in his faith, if his belief is his hope, now, for some people, that doesn't even, that's not even a little bit alarming. 
Well, of course my belief is my hope. You're in dire straits if your belief is your hope. Especially if your belief is man-made. He has a false hope. The man whose hope is in his belief has a false hope. The man-made argument at this point usually goes like this. Well, if God is sovereign, what difference does it make? And that argument reveals a lack of awareness that God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility nor his culpability. It does nothing to do that whatsoever. The man-made, man-pleasing argument refuses to allow for God's sovereignty to coexist with man's responsibility. Just a quick lesson on the general contrast between Calvinism and Arminianism. Calvinism believes that God is sovereign and man is responsible. Arminianism pretends that God is sovereign but believes that man is responsible but also able. And in Calvinism, God requires of man what he cannot do. In Arminianism, God requires of man what he can do. And what can man do? He can conjure up a false conversion. So in Calvinism, you actually need a Savior to save you. The hyper-Calvinist gladly and irresponsibly dismisses man's responsibility, and the one who resists God's sovereignty smugly rejects man's inability. But both engage in futility. One in the pretense that God operates strictly for morbid pleasure, and the other as if man fully controls his own destiny. But both hotly pursue a meaningless, dead-end pseudo-theology. The passage says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You can take that to heaven, and you can take others to heaven with you. Now, why is the matter of what whoever means important for this conversation with Nicodemus? Well, we mustn't dismiss the fact that whoever believes will have eternal life, but we mustn't steal God's glory for granting belief only to his sheep. God grants belief only to his sheep, and we must not steal God's glory for his sovereignty in doing that. We also must not dismiss the fact that whoever believes will have eternal life. This is not a frustrating discussion for the person who loves God's word. Whoever. Jesus, don't you mean whoever is a Jew? Nicodemus might have thought or asked. Don't you mean whoever is committed to our form of Judaism? Don't you mean whoever fulfills the law? Things of which man was incapable and yet quite capable of pretending to be capable. That's what a Pharisee did well. Or as a Roman Catholic priest might require of you, whoever keeps the sacraments, right? Isn't that what whoever means? Whoever brings something to the table of spiritual negotiation, whoever brings adequate works, 
No, Nicodemus, whoever, anyone who believes, everyone who believes, all who believe, and only those who believe, that's who receives eternal life. Nicodemus, are you ready for this? Whoever is a Jew and whoever is a Gentile, a non-Jew. This might have a whole lot to do with why Nicodemus left unsaved because the God of Nicodemus' pseudo-Judaism was the God of the Jews. Anyone. Jew, Greek, free man, slave, man, woman, Scythian, barbarian. Galatians 3.23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. This is Paul a number of years later. Who knows whether or not Paul, who was then Saul, might have had some interaction with Nicodemus. Very likely so. They'd likely have heard of each other. Paul being a renowned Pharisee, Nicodemus being the teacher. And here Paul, years later, now before faith came. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law was our tutor, our teacher. The law led us to the need for the Savior, for the Christ, the Messiah. That's what the law was intended, what the law actually did for those who read the law rightly. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the eternal satisfaction of believing in God's gift of the person of Christ. You're an heir according to a promise, not according to your performance. Remember, for God so loved the world. What is the world? Whoever is a Jew and whoever is a Gentile. It's the wretched existence of humanity. Mankind in its depraved state. God, out of his great love, sent his only son to save it. He came to seek and save the lost. But verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, it was not for condemnation that Jesus came to the world. It was for salvation. You know, there's not a lot to explain here. John 12, 47 says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. So if God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, then why did he send his son into the world? Verse 17 goes on to say, But in order that the world might be saved through him. Still think, World means every single person in the world? No. Say it this way. He did 
save the world. He accomplished what he intended to do. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. Don't diminish the significance of why Jesus came. Don't be the hyper-Calvinist who says, you know, the elect are going to be saved. That's not a Calvinist, friends. It's not. Who scoffs at the need to discipline self, to live a godly, quiet, hard-working, spirit-filled, others-loving life. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That which God required in the law, which man could not achieve, righteousness. God laid the iniquities of man on Christ. Therefore, the certain result is righteousness, the righteousness of God in those who believe in him. Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom. A purchase. Nicodemus would have been appalled at the words of Paul the Apostle later in Romans 8. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in verse 2 of Romans 8, Paul further explains Nicodemus' problem. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now, what does this mean? The law weakened by the flesh. It's a misunderstanding of the law. It's a misappropriation of the law of God, a misuse of it, pseudo-Judaism. Nicodemus's Judaism led Nicodemus to believe and ultimately be deeply troubled by the idea that he somehow could search the scriptures and find eternal life apart from the efficacious work of Christ on the cross that would lead to and be certainly resulting in being born again, being made regenerate. He didn't understand that. He's the teacher, doesn't understand it. Paul goes on in Romans 8, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for our sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. It cannot. He says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Does that just really destroy any man-made thinking? I mean, that so quickly and comprehensively 
utterly does away with the idea that man can bring himself to Christ. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Romans 10.11 says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. He will not be disappointed. So what do you tell people? Well, let me just tell you what not to tell them. Please, if you're still doing it, please, I beg you, stop telling people to make Jesus Lord of their life. There's a book apparently was written called How to Be Born Again. You can't tell people how to be born again. Tell people to believe and show them that you believe. There is, though, condemnation for those who do not believe. And this, again, is where we would say that God's responsibility by no means diminishes the significance or the existence of man's responsibility. Point number four, I want you to see the eternal sentence for betraying God's gift. He says, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now stick with the text. Why is he already condemned? Why? Because he does not believe. So what do you tell people? Tell them the truth. Tell them to believe the truth. There is a a consequence for not believing. To be condemned is to be disappointed. It is to be disappointed for all eternity. More than that, it's to consciously suffer in torment and agony and in utter darkness for all eternity. Matthew twenty two eleven, Jesus uses a parable of a wedding to illustrate that the person who comes to the kingdom of God on his own terms will suffer in darkness forever. See, that's a man-made approach. You come to God on your own terms, you're going to be really frustrated when you hear truth about how salvation actually works. It destroys your... Salvation experience rips it out of the ground and burns it up. This passage in Matthew 22 says, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, And cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. John 5.26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, there is an eternal sentence for betraying, for rejecting God's gift. For those who have believed salvifically, In the person of Christ, there will be resurrection unto eternal life. And for those who reject, for those who betray this message, those who betray, reject the eternal, splendorous gift of Jesus Christ, there will be an eternal judgment. While he did not come into the world to judge the world, he eventually will. 
What does that judgment look like? Point number five, the earthly evidence of betraying God's gift. Here we see the earthly evidence of betraying God's gift. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Scripture says the same thing about Cain. His works were evil. His deeds were evil. This imminent eternal judgment is manifest in the here and now in a living picture. In the condition of one's life that displays the judgment of God on his life. It's not as seemingly bad as you might think. You know what I mean by that? It doesn't appear to be as bad as it will be. In other words, that judgment that rests upon mankind right now, you don't necessarily see the difficulty that comes with judgment. You just see a lack of devotion to the light. They loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Back in John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to the Jews, and the Jews rejected him. The evidence is in. The judge and jury have assessed the matter and rendered a judgment. And it is evident in the person's life who clings to some form of religiosity that that's all he has. As the Pharisees, he has received his reward. What is it? It's the acclaim of men. It's the applause of men. You know this person. Many people would look at this person and say, oh, he knows so much of the Bible. Seems to be such an acute student, such good acumen of the Bible. And yet, he disobeys the commands of Scripture with seemingly no remorse at all. It just doesn't seem to matter to him because it doesn't. Love for the darkness and hatred for the light leave no room for any other conclusion. 1 John 2, 9 says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. While the light came into the world, those who love the darkness rejected the light. His own people, the Jews, rejected the one sent to them by the Father of lights. It should not be surprising when a very religious, seemingly very moral person is exposed for a deeper devotion to darkness. Shouldn't be a surprise. When light is shown and he rejects it, he scoffs at those who bear up under it, courageously get closer to it, attempt to understand it, even grow to enjoy it. While he rejects the light and runs to the darkness, they recognize that light brings life and he scoffs. He scoffs while he pretends to love the light. He's in private enjoying the darkness. And it should not surprise you when the religious 
seeming Bible student is discovered one day to actually be devoted to private darkness. Don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. His commitment to the darkness will see him trapped in that darkness forever. Right? There's the reality of being committed to the darkness now. There's also the reality of being trapped in darkness forever. Matthew 8.11 says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. The sons of the kingdom? Jews. Who have a very, very persuasive religious expression. They might even have a commitment to morality. Jesus goes on to say, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Paul says in Romans 1.16, you're going to have the privilege next week of hearing from Rick Henshaw in this passage. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it would have been alarming to Nicodemus to hear that whoever believes would have eternal life. But there is a difference between non-salvific belief and salvific belief. There is eternal evidence of believing in God's gift. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. This is evidence of betraying God's eternal gift. 1 John 5, 6, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. That's verse 20 in our text. Why does he not come to the light? Why does he pretend to come to the light but stop short from coming to the light? He doesn't want the private realities of his life to be exposed. So when the light is shed abroad, he shuts it down. He scoffs at it. He runs from it. He runs to the darkness, and one day all that will be exposed. Or point number six, I want you to see the earthly evidence of believing in God's gift. We've looked at the earthly evidence of betraying God's gift, the earthly evidence of rejecting God's gift. Now I want you to see the earthly evidence of believing in God's gift. Jesus says in verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. First John 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. You can't pretend fellowship. You can't fake it and get away with it. You can fake it and convince yourself that you're persuading other people that you're actually engaging in fellowship but the one who actually walks in the light knows the difference. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see that? There's a mutual interest 
in exposing one another to the blood of Christ in such a way that sin is overcome, that sanctification actually takes place. The one who pretends he wants nothing to do with this, but the one who truly shows evidence of believing in God's gift is showing evidence that he actually has eternal life. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. 1 John 2.10 says, Romans 6.20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You see that? There was no captivity, no imprisonment to righteousness. You didn't care. You wanted to be known that way, very likely, but you didn't really care about true righteousness. Verse 21, Romans 6. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. People know you're growing. People know you're being matured. People can look at your life now and say, you know what? He's a whole lot different than he was two years ago. Maybe in some cases, six months ago. You see these spurts of spiritual growth. You see this consistent willingness to put on Christ and put off sin. Can people genuinely say that about you? Let me ask it this way. Do they? Do they? I'm not talking about your mom. (laughs) And for some of you, I really mean that. Because you got great moms and they love you and they're sweet. That's not the person you typically need to go to to find out whether or not you're really exhibiting the reality of eternal life by way of your increasing sanctification. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. You see, whoever does what is true comes to the light. Whoever is truly doing that which honors the Lord, he comes to the light. He loves the light. He wants to receive the light. Why? So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Pretty clear. He does what he does so that people would see what he does. Why? So that people would know that it's actually in God. He wants his life to be exposed to the light. He wants people to know the truth. Why? Because he walks in the light. Because he's committed to good deeds that are carried out truly in God. John 15, 9 says, As the Father has loved me. Now think about our text on the whole as you hear this. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. How do you do that? Spend time with Jesus, right? That's not what it says. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. What are the commandments? Love God and love people, specifically the household of God. How do you glorify Christ? How do you really do that? You worship him? You sing to him, right? 
It's a big part of it. But you know what's just as much a part of it? Is your devotion to people to help them do the same. Believers and unbelievers. To bring the gospel to bear on their hearts by how you live your life. You can do this in Christ. What does this look like in a believer's life? Well, Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul in Romans 9 and 10 bookends over the doctrine of election in Romans 9, points out that he would be willing to give up his salvation for the Jews. And then he prays for all of them to be saved. You see how the doctrine of sovereign grace does nothing to eliminate your desire for all people on the planet to be saved? You don't know who the elect are until they're saved. Paul's life was devoted to ministering to people. It's the hyper-Calvinist who says, you know what, I'm just going to minister to those that I know are of the elect. (laughs) You don't know who they are. Your willingness to either believe what Jesus has said here in its simplicity or to thrust your own theology upon it will determine whether or not you will evangelize like Jesus and Paul. Or on the other hand, that you might evangelize like the Pharisees. Having some sort of expectation of them that they would do what you think you did. First John tells us, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see, your soteriology is the basis of your evangelism. See that? What you believe about how God saves people and whom he saves is the basis of your evangelism. Will you live in such a way that the earthly evidence is that you believe in God's gift of the person of Jesus Christ? How do you do that? You love Christ and you love his body. You show yourself devoted to the beauty of Jesus Christ by way of helping others do the same. It's to sing sound theology to him. It's to read devotionally from your Bible like you really, really want to be less like you and more like him. It's to study, to actually understand the grammar and not whitewash it with a superimposition of a man-made theology. It's very important. Oh, but it's also to study in such a way that you don't take a God-made theology and force it where it's not. It's equally bad. But in that evidence that displays your belief in this gift of God, the person of Christ, you would be effective in communicating to people that God so loved the world that he gave his only son Whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Isn't that what you want for your life? Of course you do, if you know the joy of knowing that. If you have no interest 
and communicating true, sound theology to the lost, then whatever it is that drives you to some form of evangelism is self-serving. But if you'll rest in God, rest in the truth of the Scripture, God will not only make it known that you yourself have received eternal life as manifested in your belief in the gift of Jesus Christ, he will make you effective to lead others into that eternal life-providing belief. Father, we rejoice in the person of Christ. We thank you for his grace and his kindness and his unfailing devotion to truth in this conversation with Nicodemus. Lord, we pray that even now you would grant us continued increasing trust in him, that as we sing to him, he would be exalted, we would be edified, and we'd be all the more effective at helping others to see what it means to have eternal life in Jesus Christ by believing in him. In his name we pray. Amen.